0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 4, 1 through 26. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and they when they were in the field, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the si- name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ida, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ida bore Jabal, and he was a father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naima. Lamech says to his wives, Ida and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Welcome again to Sacred City. Um, We're glad that you could be here this morning. If this is your first time here and you didn't quite clearly hear Justin, uh, do not worry. I am not the head pastor. (laughs) So um, Pastor Justin was gracious enough uh, or brave enough to allow me to preach God's word this morning, and I'm absolutely humbled to do so. So before we move forward with that, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you that you have called us, that you have brought us here into your presence. Um, We ask that by your grace, uh, you would prepare our hearts for what it is that you want to speak through your scripture. Your scripture says that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword that cuts between bone and marrow, Father. We, We ask that this morning, your word would open hearts that are turned away from you, that are are cold, um, and that are are hard from you. So God, we ask that uh, your gospel would be preached, that your gospel would be preached faithfully, and that um, we would turn towards you in faith and repent of the things, the other things that we might be worshiping. So we thank you for this morning. We ask that Jesus would be lifted high and that um, we would worship him fully. in your name, amen. Well, we are uh, in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis Genesis this morning, and so far the series has been nothing short of action-packed, especially considering we've only been through three chapters. We have learned that God, who existed in and of himself, who was perfectly satisfied in and of himself, created the earth, that he spoke into existence the birds of the air and the animals of the ground. That he created light and he created darkness. That he created the dry ground that we walk on and the waters of the seas that we swim in. He created everything and it was good. We have learned also in Genesis 2 that after God created the earth, that on the seventh day he rested after his work. And then it's at this point in in the book of Genesis where God goes from a very galactic view, as Justin said, and cosmic view to a very specific and particular view as Moses, the writer of Genesis, hones in on the account of man's creation. In that, we learn that man was created imago Dei. That he was created in the image of God to, to reflect his glory and to exhibit his character. We learn that man was created worshipers of God who were designed to walk in right relationship with God. Last week, in Genesis 3, Justin talked about how worshipers became idolaters. And the very fabric of creation came undone by the intentions of one man's heart. Justin expounded upon Genesis three fifteen, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Justin talked about in this verse, God makes a promise that from the line of Adam, a seed will be born that will make all things right. Justin talked about how this verse talks about a seed that will be born from the line of Adam that will make everything all new and will speak to the sin that took place in Genesis 3. That's kind of a 200-mile-per-hour flyby of the first three chapters of Genesis. But if you want to check out more, you can check out our podcasts online. Um, But like I said today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Um, It is a story that is rich in history. Many famous books, movies, and quotes have been born from the text that we are about to see unfold. And last week Justin talked about how from the fall that, that there would be a seed of Adam and that there would be a seed of Satan. And we would continue to see these roles be played out throughout the book of Genesis specifically and throughout the rest of Scripture. And in this story today, we're going to see for the first time the representations of, of these two seeds play themselves out. Genesis 4 is a story of faith and of unbelief. It is a story of delightful hearts and dutiful obedience. It is a story of religious men and worshipers of God. And it is my heart that God will use this text. And as we expose it, it will also expose something in our hearts so that we might be able to worship Jesus more fully. So, we've got a lot to cover this morning, and I'm just going to go ahead and dive into Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So we, we're we we're going to park it right there. <laughs> In verse 1, at the beginning of verse 1, we see the first natural birth in the context of human history. Cain being born of Adam and Eve. Now, Moses, once again the writer of this book, is very intentional about wanting to include this piece of information in the text. Because if we remember, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned in such a way that it not only impacted them, but their entire lineage. So Moses is showing us that just like Cain, we are a part of the Adamic line. And this, this sin issue that's being talked about, this fracture, is what theologians call the doctrine of inherited sin. Okay, And so that's what we're seeing played out right here. And, it, and doctrine of inherited sin basically says that I am not a sinner just because I do bad things. And it's not even necessarily that I'm born a good person, but in fact that I am born with a sinful condition that I inherited from my parents. St. Augustine... A really, really old theologian who said a lot of cool things about Jesus said, came up with this Latin term called incurvitus ense, which means that as a people naturally from birth, that we are curved in on ourselves, that we are naturally operating out of a concern for ourselves and not others, that we are naturally a selfish people who do not love God or love people naturally. The most interesting thing about that is that our culture affirms that perspective of man's condition and actually says that we, we approve of that. That on this earth, every, we live in a world that it's every man for himself. That we need to be operating out of a concern for myself first. And that, I, and that I am number one, that I need to be operating out of a concern for myself. Because we live in a world that says that it's all about you. So we need, to, we need to build up the self-esteem inside of us and build up the internal strength to be able to go out and do that. A third philosophy on the condition of man's heart says that we, are, that we are victims, that we are victims of something bad that has happened around us, that something bad in our environment or people around us has done something to us and something just needs to be made right, something needs to be worked out inside of us. This perspective does not take any ownership from the individual. And it's simply blame-shifting, which in itself was born in the fall, in the garden after the fall. As a church, we affirm what St. Augustine says. We say that we are curved in on ourselves, but also that the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that God reaches into the depths of our hearts, extracts our heart of stone, and deposits a new one. Making our, giving us new affections so that, we are, so that we can stand erect, worshiping God and loving people. We are called monergists. Mono, meaning one, means that we believe that God is the author and the perfecter of the work of salvation, that He alone is the one that saves, that I did not figure God out, that He was the one that saved me, that came to me. It's also interesting to note that in verse 1, when Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, it sounds like a really good thing, but it's actually not. In the Hebrew text, theologians call this a synergistic proclamation, which means synergistic as opposed to monergistic, says that I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, I, God did it, but I also did it too that he was the one that did it, but I also took a part in the role of of producing this child. And this is an interesting thing to note because we're going to continue to see this play out of the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture that man is jealous for God's glory and wants to rob him of the honor that is rightfully his. So in verse 2 we continue, we see that both bros get a job, one being a rancher and one being a farmer. And so even now, after the fall, we're continuing to see the um, cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 working out before us. Where God says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So we're seeing that here in verse 2. Let's continue on to Genesis 4.3. Sin is crouching at the door, and its, and its desire is for you, but you m- must rule over it. Okay, we will stop right there. <clears throat> so in this, in, this, in this piece of scripture, Cain and Abel want to go spend some time with God, right? So Cain, being a farmer, goes and gathers some of the fruit of his field. Abel, being a shepherd, gathers together the firstborn of his flock and his fat portions. So both enter the same sanctuary... At the same exact time, both having something in their hands, and God rejects Cain's and accepts Abel's. Both go as priests, worshiping the same God and desiring this God's acceptance. But it is only Abel's that God finds to be acceptable. Why is this? If you could imagine Cain's face when he when his offering is rejected, he's he's saying, "I, "I went to church." I did the church thing. I didn't even I didn't even go to church. I brought something to church. Do you know how much blood and sweat that I poured out over that field to bring forth that offering into the sanctuary? This is why God rejects his offering. The worshiper and his offering are inseparable. They are inextricably connected. In the story, we see that Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. That means that he brought the very best of what he had to God. The The first 10%, if you will, not the last 10%. The first fruits. He brought to God the very best of what he had because he believed that God was the most worthy of his worship, the most worthy of his praise, the most worthy of his time, and the most worthy of his trust. And so that is reflected in what he gave to God. The worshiper in the offering... Are inseparable. I love one of Mark Driscoll's quotes. He says that typically the Christian says, Why should I have to give God 10% of my money when God is saying, Why should I be giving 90% to you? Isn't it funny how every announcement, question, or statement about God has at its roots open palms or white knuckled fists? And we are not just talking about money here, we are talking about all of life. Because every single day we make an offering to someone or something that we see to be worthy of our worship. And so the question is, if we make offerings to things, it's a question of what are we offering our worship to? We learn here that Cain chooses to place his offering or entrust his worship to something aside from God. And we often do the same thing the person sitting next to us isn't going to be able to provide the ultimate security and the ultimate comfort that we so desperately need. A lot of times in missional communities, we can go to that person who seems like they know a lot and are really well-versed in Scripture, and we go to them wanting them to save us before we even go to God, our Father, who alone saves. And sometimes, in the context of missional community or in the context of our workplace, We we seek affirmation and approval from people before we seek God's, because we are not satisfied in resting in what He has done for us. As we pick up the story again, we see that Cain values his own righteousness far too much. So Cain is angry. He's angry because his offering was rejected. He's embarrassed. And he, and he brought something in his hands, and he doesn't understand what's going on. But God is saying, it's not about what's in your hands, it's about what's in your heart. So God comes to Cain, he approaches Cain in his anger, and he says, Cain, I love you. Why are you angry, Cain? I love you. Why has your face fallen? In this, we are seeing the first time that God is, is urging Cain to repent of his self-righteousness and his jealousy towards others. But all Cain can see is what's in his hands. And all God can see is what's in his heart. James Montgomery Boyce says this. Oftentimes our sense of righteousness, achievements, or good works are not actually assets as we typically think they are. They are in fact liabilities. Since by trusting in our own assets, we don't have to fully trust God. Cain is drowning in his own righteousness and his jealousy of others. He can't see his sin, and so he doesn't understand why he needs to repent. Moving forward to, to verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Sometimes we can misinterpret this verse and take it the wrong way and think that God is just telling Cain to just pick up his bootstraps and just try and be a good person. But if we look closer, we learn that that is not actually what God is saying. saying, If we remember in Genesis 1, man was created imago Dei, that he was created in the image of God. And part of that is that he was created to exhibit his character. And so what God is doing here is that if we remember in Genesis 3, we begin to worship things and we begin to worship people that are not God. And so what God is doing here is he is appealing to that in his heart that that moral character that God entrusted into Cain's heart, that moral compass... Of what is discerning good and evil, because God knows that if Cain finds his satisfaction in God, God will get the glory he deserves and Cain will get the joy he desires. We see here that God is after Cain's joy. This is not drudgery theology. You have just got to be a good person. God is saying that he wants Cain's heart. On a week-to-week basis, Justin sometimes talks about how God is after our joy, not our dutiful obedience. And we see this being played out here in the Scripture, that God is after Cain's heart and not just his hands and what his hands are doing. We're seeing in this story Cain constantly trying to appease God, constantly trying to work for his own righteousness, and constantly comparing himself to his brother, where Cain's able to simply, simply puts his faith in God, And trusts in him. Let's move forward to Genesis verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So in Genesis 4 verses 8 through 11 we see Cain kill his brother. We see his theology in the sanctuary spill over into his ethics in the field and the first religious war in the context of human history takes place in a muddy field. So Cain builds a makeshift grave in this field, throws his brother in it, and buries him. God comes along and says, where is your brother's Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I his designated driver? Am I, am I his babysitter? And God, res- God responds by saying, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. You are now cursed from the ground. Do you really think that God needed to ask the question, where is Abel? The all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, and omniscient God? Of course not. God has given Cain another opportunity to repent of his sin and put his faith in him. But he responds by saying, am I my brother's keeper? It's amazing that he is, at, he is urging him to repent again even after this unspeakable act. Because God already knows what Cain has done. But he is just asking him to repent once again. And when he says, where is my brother Abel? It sounds very, very similar to God's question to Adam in the garden when he responds by saying, I don't know. It is at this point where we have to be very careful of our interpretation of scripture. As we talked about earlier, a lot of liberal, progressive, and man-centered philosophies all want to say that everything else and everyone in your life is Cain. That you are just the good person in the field, working the grounds, trying to do honest work, and just trying to do the right thing. And that Cain in your life is always out to get you, oppress you, and trying to snuff you out. And then the question, the application question from this perspective is that we just have to deal with our Cain issue this morning. Because of this scene in Genesis, Cain has been typified as a godless man. Rightfully so. As a defective and crooked human being. And he is just that. But oftentimes we need to check ourselves and our assessment before we look down on Cain with self-righteous indignation, and ask ourselves sometimes, how am I any different? How am I any different than Cain? Because I'll be honest, I see Cain in me every day. I see my self-righteousness, my pride, and envy stir up in me. And as a culture, we're told that we all look like Abel, that we are, quote-unquote, the innocent ones. But my contention this morning is that we look a lot less like Abel and a lot more like Cain. To the point of even saying maybe, (laughs) it's not even a question of whether or not we look like Cain, but a question of who or what it is that we are killing. In In the story of Scripture, in the Bible, we see that true worship requires you to kill anything that threatens it in order to restore it or maintain it. That's intense. I'll say that again. True worship requires you to kill anything that threatens it in order to to restore it or maintain it. So what I mean by that is that we come in here this morning desiring to worship God, to make much of God. And when we leave here, if we want to continue in that worshipful relationship, it requires us to kill sin. We have to. It's indicative to that worshipful relationship. And in this story, we see Cain worshiping or what is the most worthy thing to him? What is the most thing that holds the most weight? He is, finds his righteousness to be the most worthy thing. And so in this, in this chapter, we see that Abel and his offering and what God says to Cain threatens that worshipful relationship that Cain is indulging with, with his own righteousness. So it's at this point that he has a choice to either continue in this, and kill the thing that's threatening it or turn from this worshipful relationship and love God love his brother and repent of his sin and just like this in the story of scripture God who desires a worshipful relationship with man must kill something to restore it and we will get there in a little bit The thing about human worship is that it is, it, is a weighty, it is a weighty thing. In Genesis 1, when we were created as worshipers designed to worship God and find our satisfaction in God, the weightiness of our worship was meant to be entrusted to God and God alone. But as we talked about, that in Genesis 3, we see that man begins to entrust his worship to man and things that are not God. And so what happens is that when we entrust this weighty thing that we call worship to things that weren't designed to hold the weight of it, they begin to buckle and and snap underneath the weight of it. They were not designed to hold the weightiness of our worship. If we begin to worship people and the person that is most valued in our life, ultimately We're killing them with our worship because they will never feel like they can satisfy you, never feel like they can fully meet your needs. The person in the missional community that you turn to, that you are constantly calling Savior and constantly pursuing them because you need them to fix you, you're killing them because they're never going to be able to serve you well enough. They're never going to be able to make you feel like you're fixed because you're not turning to the God of the Bible. If we're constantly trying to receive our affirmation from people, you're killing them because no human can fill the void of man's heart. They will never feel, you will never feel loved enough, and they can't ever feel like they are loving you well enough. The question is who or what it is that you are killing. Let's keep moving to verse 12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we'll stop there. So in verse 12, we see God announce the consequence of Cain's actions. Right? That he says that you will be, you will be cursed from the ground. We see that Cain's corrupt theology that informs his ethics in the field also impacts the earth's ecology when God says the ground will no longer yield to you the strength of its fruits. In the doctrine of inherited sin, we see how deep the sin issue goes in our heart. And in this verse and in chapters 3, we see how far-reaching the scope of sin's effects are that that impacts the world and everything in it. And after God declares this over Cain, Cain responds with self-pity. At this point, he's given a third opportunity to repent of his sin and put in his faith in God, and he chooses otherwise. He chooses to feel bad for himself. He says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So we see the first time that God approaches him in love and grace and in gentleness and urges him to repent, Cain responds in anger. He's embarrassed and says, that I don't, I don't understand with what I have is wrong. I don't think that I'm that bad of a person. The second time God comes to him, he says, am I my brother's keeper? He shifts blame. He says that I'm not the issue. I don't, I don't need to take ownership here. I'm not, I do not have responsibility for what took place. And the third time, he responds in self-pity, just looking down at himself in clothes, feeling bad for the card that he had been dealt, the life that he was living the place that he found his, himself in life. And after he responds in self-pity, God says, Not so. If anyone kills you, vengeance will be taken out on him sevenfold. And the scripture says that God places a mark on Cain for protection and then continues to let him go away from the presence of the Lord into the land of Nod. The land of Nod in the Genesis text, is um, translated as a place of wandering. So after Cain is continued to urge to repent of his sin, God just sends him away to a place where he will wander for the rest of his life. We learn that if God continues to approach us in gentleness and in love, and we continue to refuse to repent of our sin and put our faith in him, that we will just be wanderers of the earth like Cain. And the question that I want to ask is, are you wandering this morning? Is God gently and lovingly urging you to repent and turn back to Him? And are you resisting His grace in that? Like Cain, we oftentimes oppose repentance. Humbling ourselves before our wives, families, friends, and missional communities makes us cringe but in this story, we see that repentance brings peace, joy, and contentment. We're holding fast to our pride. It brings hurt, turmoil, and disaster. Verse 17 continues, saying, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehuel, and Mehuel fathered Meshuel, and Meshuel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the first was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal, Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal, Cain, was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, your wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold." I, I honestly do not know how many of those names I pronounced accurately. <laughs> but the, 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 the significance of the scripture is not necessarily history per se. The narrator is just continuing to show us how the human condition is playing itself out <clears throat> throughout itself in the book of Genesis and in history. This text shows some of the first cities being cultivated on the earth. So we're continuing to see the cultural mandate being played out before our eyes. However, Adam's Adam's lineage is symbolic of human culture with great civilizations and no God. Genesis 25 continues to say, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth Seth loves God and begins to point people back to him in worship. We are presented with a glimmer of hope in the chapter that is filled with so much hurt and so much pain. However, if we are... Understanding chapter 4 rightly, if we have properly interpreted this text, we should be absolutely devastated. This is a chapter that is filled with lies, deceit, envy, and murder. And if this was the first time that you came and listened to the Bible being preached and you just heard chapter 4, this would not be good news. This would not be good news. What about the blood that was in the ground that was crying out? And what about the innocent man that, had his, that was slain and thrown into a grave? And what about the murderer who was pardoned and let go? If we were reading this text, we could probably and maybe conclude that if we were just reading it in and of itself, we would say that this is not just. This is not a product of of a good God, and this is not good news. We, we see the seed of Satan manifest itself in the person of Cain. The seed of Satan meaning rebellious, lawless, faithlessness, and we see all these things represented in Cain. However, the promise of God that, that he made in Genesis 3.15 is that a person from the line of Adam, a man, will be born that makes all things right. And the truth is is that Jesus set things right when he lived the perfect life and died the death that he did on the cross. The blood that was crying out from the ground was vindicated when Jesus shed his blood on the ground when it was falling from the cross. The injustice that took place in the muddy field reminds us a lot of the injustice that took place on the cross. However, the blood that cried out which alluded to guilt and shame in the field, would be replaced with the blood that spoke of forgiveness and love. And the murderer who we think was let off the hook, he actually wasn't. Jesus pain paid for what Cain did. As Jesus was approaching the cross, Cain's list Of things that he did wrong, was entrusted to, was put on Jesus as he was being crucified on the cross. Jesus died a murderer's death on the cross. As I begin to wrap things up this morning, I want to leave you with this. That the word able in its original context literally means vapor or breath. It means that which is insubstantial. He was given this name by his parents when he was born. He was a righteous man who had a worshipful heart and died at the hands of a lawless man. And if we begin to interpret this text within the context of what we've read so far in Genesis and throughout the entire of the biblical story, and we begin to peel back its layers, we begin to see that it is all about Jesus. Because in the gospel, Jesus is the better Abel, who became insubstantial on our behalf and worshiped God fully, who was slaughtered unlawfully and thrown in a grave. But Jesus rose from that grave, unlike Abel, conquering death, defeating sin, and binding Satan. In the gospel, Jesus died the death that Cain deserved. When Cain was far from God, he was a lawless man, and we are oftentimes the same way. And it was at this point when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this, Jesus became the mark that covered us, just like the mark that covered Cain. And now, because Jesus died, we can, unlike Cain, repent of our sin and put our faith in him. And lastly, in the gospel, Jesus is the offering that we all need. This sin issue that we are dealing with is intense and we, de- we are living underneath the lordship of a just God and he has to deal with it. And he dealt with this issue by putting it on his son. Jesus did not become the offering that we all deserved, but he did become the offering that we all desperately needed. In this story, we see that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock to God as his offering that this sheep was born and it was immediately ushered into the sanctuary for slaughter. So it was with Jesus as he was sent to this earth and became our offering. And one day we will all enter the sanctuary of God and the only thing we can offer that will be accepted is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're already ready for communion this morning. (laughs) And in communion, that offering that was made for us expresses itself in the form of bread and wine. As Jesus said, take this bread and eat it. It is my body. And take this wine and drink it. For this is my blood that was spilled out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As a church, we see this to be as an act of worship. We're not just simply taking a few moments Uh, to remember quietly someone who had passed. But we actually believe that through this, through participating in this meal, that God is imparting grace to us. Um, And just lastly, please know that the table is open for baptized believers only. Um, And while I pray real quick, can the men that are serving communion come forward? Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. Um, We thank you for the story of Cain and Abel. um, That Jesus is the better Abel who died for us and in our place and took our sin upon upon himself. That we can, unlike Cain, repent of our sin and put our faith in you. I pray that we would be in awe of the magnificent and beautiful and awesome power that you have demonstrated in your gospel, and that we would leave knowing that Jesus died for us and in our place. Amen.